1: ladies and gentlemen thrilled to have you here if it's your first time here at modern day debate my name is james coons and i am one of your hosts for tonight and we want to let you know that we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science religion and politics and we want to let you know folks no matter what walk of life you are from we hope you feel welcome and in addition we are thrilled we have many more debates coming up and so hey if it's your first time here consider as well hitting that subscribe button for reminders of those upcoming debates and what i'm going to do here is i'm going to kick it over to erica quite quickly who is linked in the description she's at the youtube channel gutsick gibbon and i oftentimes refer to her as youtube's favorite daughter she is very, beloved, very loved by everybody here at Modern Day Debated, so thrilled to have her back. And what she will do is introduce our guests and explain the format, and then she'll actually get them going into the actual format for the debate. So thanks very much, Erica. The floor is all yours.
2: Man, James, you know I love being here. I listen. I have my haters. I, as as much as I love coming on here, every now and then I get someone sassy who's who's trying to trying to hate on me a little. But that's okay. We all got thick skin here on modern day debate. Um, I am so psyched to be here. We've had some killer debates here this week. This is the one I've been waiting for. I've been excited for this one ever since I heard that it was happening. I actually asked James, please, you have to let me come on and help co-moderate this debate. I have to be here for this. Um, my background is primatology and anthropology, so I, I was very much interested in the conversation that's going to be happening today. Um, the, I'm, I think we're going to start off with just letting everybody introduce themselves. So Dr. Meldrum and Maddie, whichever one of you wants to go first, we'll do those intros and then we'll hop right into that opening discussion um, or opening statements round which are going to be 12 minute opening statements roughly and then 50 to 60 minutes of open discussion followed by a Q&A. So would either of you prefer to go first and in introducing yourself and telling us a little about your background?
3: Okay uh, so just by way of introduction I'm uh, a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University here in Pocatello, Idaho, southeastern Idaho right in the heart of the Rocky Mountains and uh, so I, I primarily teach uh, human gross anatomy in the health professions programs. That's my my bread and butter. I get to stick my hands in some other topics now and again, uh, occasionally uh, down in the anthropology department and and some other um, uh, biology-related courses like evolution and so on. Uh, my research focuses on uh, primarily the the uh, well. Evolutionary anthropology and, and functional morphology in the broadest sense, uh, but more specifically questions about the pattern and process of the emergence of human bipedalism. What it is that sets us apart uh, those adaptations for tottering about on two limbs instead of four. And uh, that is is really what has drawn me into this question of the possibility of another bipedal uh, hominin of some sort. And, um, uh, so I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Pass, awesome. pass it on.
2: All right, Maddie, tell us about yourself.
4: Hey team. I'm Maddie. Um, you can find me on the internet at science side up. Um, I talk about mostly like physical sciences. So my background is in, um, Uh, uh, Gosh, okay, I have a bachelor's in math and earth, atmospheric and planetary sciences from MIT. Then I ran off and joined the Navy and I taught nuclear physics to kids in the Navy for four years. And now I'm in graduate school studying meteorology. (laughs) So um, over at my channel, we're doing a series on climate dynamics right now, if you want to come learn some science of the atmosphere, I think it's super fun, uh, but pretty broad topics over there. And I am super excited for tonight's
2: conversation. Sick. So, hey, man. So am I. All right. We're gonna hop right into those opening statements. So we're gonna start with Dr. Meldrum. Um, and I, I don't know. Are you sharing your screen, or or do you need to do? A no, PowerPoint no. This
3: setup? is fine. No, this is fine. Just cool. just a little little brief uh, kind of setting the orientation. I, you know, I'm I'm often asked, uh, uh, do I believe in Bigfoot? And sometimes I surprise people with my response when I say no. And I allow that to hang in the air pregnantly for a little bit, a pause and uh, let that sink in. and then and then point out that in the vernacular, uh, the uh, that question connotes a uh, an acknowledgement of a position of faith, an acceptance of things in the absence of evidence. And that certainly has no place in uh, in our discussions, in in science, or my pursuit of this very interesting question. I explained to them, no, I don't, uh, I haven't uh, accepted the existence of something in the absence of evidence, but I'm, I'm, I'm very close to being convinced that something does exist on the basis of the evidence and then proceed to lay out what some of that evidence is. So I'm excited, uh, for, um, tonight, the opportunity, uh, it, it's always in, in science, you know, we, ideally we, uh, we uh, rely heavily on on peer review, on having our colleagues look at something because it always helps to have another set of eyes to look at something from a different perspective and a different background. And that, And that is an important point too. Uh, even as an individual looking at uh, evidence, it's, it's absolutely critical to have an informed uh, to, to draw informed conclusions or, or draw an informed opinion about a piece of evidence, to understand its historical context, what was the uh, the knowledge that framed that particular piece of data uh, at, at the time that it's being discussed? You know, we now have the uh, the great advantage of uh, of 2020 hindsight, looking at a lot of accumulated uh, expressions and opinions, and sometimes people. Uh, Uh, well-intended or or not, uh, take things, you know, we have that phrase, you've taken it out of context. As we discuss some of this evidence, like the Patterson-Gimlin film, as we'll uh, come to later, I think, it is absolutely critical to, uh, in order to understand not only what's on the film, but the reaction to it from the scientific community to discuss what the mindset of the scholars at that time, what was the prevailing paradigm um, uh, against which this evidence was being considered? And has that changed? Has that changed? And and does that change uh, the conclusions that we draw? You know, my, my goal in participating in something like this, and my goal in, in writing a book was not to convince people of the existence of Bigfoot, but rather, I mean, that may be the conclusion that's drawn on the basis of the evidence they may come to a similar conclusion that i have arrived at but my my objective as a as a science educator is to present the evidence in as objective and even handed a way as possible you know if i may indulge if you'll indulge me um the back of my heart the hardback of <clears throat> the back cover of the dust jacket of the hardback edition of my book has an excerpt from the foreword i was just uh, you know Delighted beyond description when Dr. George Schaller agreed to write the foreword to my book, and uh, he paid me one of the highest compliments, if I can put it in his own words. He said, Jeff Meldrum is a scientist and an expert in human locomotor adaptations. In Sasquatch Legend Meat Science, he examines all evidence critically not to force a conclusion, but to establish a baseline of facts upon which further research can depend. His science is not submerged by opinion and dogmatic assumption. With objectivity and insight, he analyzes evidence from tracks, skin ridges, uh, film footage, and DNA, and he compares it to that of primates and various other species. He disentangles fact from anecdote, supposition and wishful thinking and concludes that the search for yeti and sasquatch is a valid scientific endeavor by offering a critical scrutiny sasquatch legend science does more for this field of investigation than all the past arguments and polemics of contesting experts that really uh I, again like i said i was tickled uh, delighted beyond uh, beyond words um at his willingness to uh, even read my manuscript, let alone provide such a, such an endorsement. But, but that really captured, I was all the more delighted that that, that was the take home message he got from the book. So tonight I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to a intellectual conversation about the nature of the evidence and the interpretation of its uh, historical context and see where that, uh, where that points us as curious inquiring minds. There you go.
2: Awesome, sweet. All right, Maddie, hop on into it. Okay. Well,
4: if I, this is this handsome boy is Chester, he's probably going to come in and out throughout tonight. He's he's very good. Um, so, um, so about me, you might have noticed that in my little brief scientific background, I gave about myself. While it is kind of broad um, and cover touches on a lot of fields, none of those fields are anything like biology or zoology or anthropology um, or anything in the life sciences. So I'm certainly not trying to come in tonight as like an expert, um, in any of those things. And I certainly don't claim to be. Um, but what I do bring tonight is, um, I am, I am very good. Um, and I've had a lot of training in, um, just kind of like the understanding what it is like. What types of evidence do you need to support a scientific claim? Um, and so my goal for tonight is to sort of be um, an audience surrogate. Really, um, I don't. I, it, uh, I don't have a strong opinion one way or another on whether Bigfoot exists. Um, it's not something I have a lot of evidence sitting in my back pocket about, right? Um, and so I would like to give Dr. Meldrum the, the opportunity to convince me tonight. Um, I'm, uh, uh, I, I, I'm hard to convince about things. Um, and so I'm kind of here to like ask questions and see where the evidence holds up and, and to do that from a fresh perspective. So that's kind of my goal for tonight. Um, and I do, I, uh, as we're moving into the open discussion section, um, I want to ask a couple questions if that's okay Um, because I want to make sure that I kind of fully understand what the claim is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is uh, my understanding is that like the claim of what Bigfoot is, um, Mm -hmm. is sort of Bigfoot is our colloquial name for like the existence of some novel species of hominid or something which is genetically distinct from humans and other primates. um, And that, uh, you know, some basic characteristics are that uh, this creature is like large, taller than the average human. uh, g- generally covered in hair and specifically it's bipedal which would also separate, separate it from other hominids. Mm-hmm. So is that a fair summarization of what the claim is?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. Yes. okay. No, th- yeah you, so you want you can I respond to that yes, right now? Yes please. So, so right it, in part it's going to depend on who you ask. One one of the one of the things uh, the phenomenon that have occurred that has occurred amongst the community of the Bigfoot enthusiasts, if you will, well, if we can label them such broadly there, and, and it's always been present, but it's become much more, uh, distinct and intense of late, it seems. but there's this, uh, parting of the ways between what has been described as the flesh and blooders, if you will, <laughs> those who, who, um, who see the possible existence of sasquatch as as another large primate distinct in the ways that you mentioned Um, while the other group for various reasons which range from in my opinion opinion um, a resignation due to the inability to find conclusive evidence to other uh alleged personal experiences or, or, uh, or worldviews, um, see Bigfoot as the manifestation of something very paranormal and, um, even parapsychological, uh, ranging from stepping through interdimensional portals to time travel, to shape-shifting, to, um, being capable of mind speak and, you know, on a higher Plane of existence. man, you name it. There, there's a, there's a, a a following of that particular uh, view, and um, and, and I would say that's I'm right. Doing, we have our- <laughs> while well acknowledging or uh, making the point that those who live in glass houses don't throw stones. I'm I'm squarely in the biological camp. I mean, my uh, for me, the bottom line is: is there a biological? species behind the legend of sasquatch that was kind of the theme of the book of legend meets science there is no question that the that the legend of the legendary figure exists in uh, uh, not only western americana but interestingly from some of the earliest colonial times there were reports of wild men that didn't have the terms bigfoot or sasquatch but um uh, and and uh, they are sometimes overlooked because the uh, journalistic depictions of a wild man often were interpreted as just uh, a uh, a person, a hermit, a recluse, someone who was unkempt and had long beard and flowing hair uh, and ran around in the woods. But when you read carefully, a lot of these describe gorilla-like creatures that leave large footprints, 16-inch footprints and such. And so uh, it's been, the phenomenon uh, is there. Um, whether there is a creature, ever was a creature, or still is a creature, uh, a species behind that legend, that's that's the question, I think, that uh, that comes to the fore. And not just here, but of course the question... The question always arises: Well, what about the Yeti? You know, even even Schaller here made reference to the Yeti. What about the Yeti? And then there's the Orang Pendek, and there's the Almasti, and the uh, you know the list goes on. There seems to be characters um, not universal. That's what's interesting too. There there seems to be a biogeographical basis for the persistence of uh, many of these wild man creatures. Uh, um, or figures, but they have certainly been part of uh, human history from the very get go from Gilgamesh and Enkidu, you know, forward in uh, Western civilization, at least.
4: Okay, so, okay, so um, uh, then what's what we're going to talk about tonight, Ray, and what um, uh, I think, and this is me kind of, again, I'm clarifying to make sure we're on the same page. Right. Right. uh, kind of the the evidence you're going to present is for the like there exists or has existed or did exist right mm-hmm. um the uh, a a species of primate which is a distinct species from human which, you know, spoken about in these legends. Um, you right. know, may maybe some of those writings, but um, we're uh, we're going to kind of assume this is something that, like, we as you know, we're all scientists in the room that we as scientists can dis- discuss intelligently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, st- keeping away from that paranormal aspect right. and looking for. Flesh and blood evidence, um, right. and certainly like journal entries. That's that's certainly valid evidence. Have taken uh, uh, as uh, well, a valid type yeah, of evidence. Right?
3: And Not, ethnographic, away, ethnographic evidence certainly has has its role, and and uh, I mean the fact that indigenous populations in these areas where these these species presumably reside have deep rooted traditions as well is is another important. Uh, important aspect i I devote a whole chapter in my book to native american traditions no i don't want to say mythology even folklore is a little bit loaded i mean folklore is is more reasonable because that sort of just builds the layers of varnishing of of an elaboration of just like they do with any any biological entity that that plays a role in their sort of whether it's a pantheon or just a, a world view of the natural world um, it plays a role, but, uh, but that's one piece. And that's certainly not my expertise either. And so I'm, I'm uh, squarely planted in, uh, in taking the uh, trace and physical evidence that would suggest the uh, existence of such a creature.
4: Okay. Um, so would it, what, let's, if, if we can, let's move into Um, kind of talking about what that evidence is. So um, if we were going to kind of go through kind of one piece of evidence or one like group of evidence, um, where would you want to
3: start? Actually, if you'll indulge me again, just for a minute, uh, before jumping into that, to establish what I was talking about as far as context. And uh, again, because um, especially since I sort of front-loaded this with, with the paranormal and the uh, and the uh, anecdotal and and um, ethnographic information, um, it's it's really important to realize that 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 the suggestion of the of the existence of such a creature isn't out of place. I mean, this is why paranormal is so uh, antithetical to what we're we're going to talk about. Now, back in the '60s. When this started to capture the public attention and some evidence like the Patterson-Gimlin film was brought before the scientific community and was, uh, you know, evaluated by panels of, of, of experts at the time, um, there was a particular context. One of the things in anthropology that was gaining traction at that time was a notion which had been borrowed from ecology, which had, a, you know, also... a, a um, incorporated it from microbiology. Um, there was a, in the 1930s. There was a microbiologist uh, who suggested the. Uh, it was uh, Gauze, who suggested the what he termed the principle of competitive exclusion. In working with microbes, he quickly discovered that you could c- culture these things quite successfully. But sometimes, when you combined two species in the same medium one would drive the other quickly to extinction It has become a classic example two species of paramecium for example well the new discipline of ecology glommed onto that principle and it became very central to their discipline in the niche hypothesis the niche theory that no two species can occupy the same niche Well, a a new anthropology discipline grabbed onto that and said, well, hominins are very unique uh, by their braininess, their bipedalism, their material culture. So there can only be one hominin in that niche at any given time. So in the 60s, human evolution was seen as this, this single file straight line succession of species, one being superseded by the other. So, you know, when these scientists who viewed in 1967 the Patterson-Gimlin film, they weren't evaluating what was on the screen because in their minds there couldn't be another bipedal hominin out there. It countered the paradigm that they were operating under. So they were simply looking at at a rationale to negate it, to reject it. Okay.
4: Sorry, I um, didn't I didn't want to interrupt, but I did yeah, want to ask a clarifying please, question. Please, um, yeah um so that that so the the common kind of model of human evolution that's presented in most say like high school level textbooks is the the march of progress diagram and i do understand that 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 right that's really not a very good way at looking at evolution right it's it's not really a a straight nothing's going to happen in a straight line things are going to branch out you'll have kind of different species try out go extinct whatever have you but so the idea um So, and I I certainly wouldn't argue, um, and I don't have, I'm not of the opinion that, like, uh, human evolution, like, humans evolving has to be this, like, unique, crazy thing. Oh, right.
3: Yeah, not now. yeah.
4: Um, And so that's, I think what you're saying is that that's not the current view of evolution. That sort of linear progression is an outdated view. But when the evidence from that, like, video um, was initially evaluated, that linear evolution was the um was the model and so um, was outright rejected um because of that uh like you're saying historical context so right um,
3: and now uh, we have a very okay we have a very bushy tree one that has Mm -hmm. new branches added on almost an annual basis as discoveries keep rolling forth Uh, and and the other aspect dimension of that is not only is it very bushy with many contemporaneous species but many of those branches have persisted until more recently than would have ever been allowed for or or acknowledged as a possibility just 20 years ago so you know we've got uh, good solid evidence in the in the uh, fossil record of of um, homo erectus about you know persisting in in the islands in the indonesian archipelago until about twenty five thousand years the discovery of the hobbit was a a real game changer uh for people's mindset. Um we've got a and d game. Sorry. Pardon? Pardon?
4: <laughs> said, That's great news for my Dungeons and Dragons game.
3: That's right, yeah. Oh. Yeah. But so the point is the question, the whereas before mm-hmm. uh Bigfoot would have been just something kind of floating out there in, in the ether with no mm-hmm. no context, uh, now there is a context. And it's not, you know, so anyone who says as someone actually did to me, an anthropologist said to me, they can't exist, therefore they don't exist, and it doesn't matter what evidence you think you have. How's that for a starting point, you know, for a <laughs> conversation? <laughs> kind of That's dampens a difficult it.
4: starting point. So yeah. then I think maybe I, I asked earlier what the specific claim was, and I think yeah. maybe we should break here and um, uh, adjust that a little bit, because okay. uh, uh, so certainly other, like, hominid species that are not humans as we exist right now have existed and and persisted like coexisted with humans so i think the specific argument here is that this would have to be like what we call bigfoot would have to be one of those species that existed to modern times so at least 20th century
3: precisely so i i I, uh, adopted a term that was coined actually by a russian uh, Hominologist by his own uh, labeling called relic hominoids. Relic hominoids. So, a relic is in biology is used as to describe a a population or species that is uh, has persisted from a time when it was more widespread or um, uh, or more common. Hominoid can can have a vernacular of human like, but in a more precise taxonomic sense, it's the superfamily that includes all of the apes, both lesser and great apes and humans. So So you're right. In characterizing the question of what is Bigfoot, I see it as a persistent relic hominoid, one that almost certainly has a circumpacific distribution because we have remarkably similar evidence and anecdotes coming from Asia.
4: Okay I'm sorry uh, you say circum-pacific you mean exist on both both east and west sides of the Pacific Ocean?
3: Yep exactly oh. okay. and um, but also potentially other branches of that bushy tree so maybe we've got uh, in the form of the Russian almas which has a very different description more still covered with hair bipedal but much more human-like in size and and, uh, and capable of tool use, capable of language even, it seems, based on anecdotes and uh, interacting with local populations in a very different way than this giant ape of uh, Bigfoot. Um, we have the potential uh, connecting the dots between the uh, Ibu Gogo of Flores, Indonesia, uh, or Orang Pendek, Ibu, uh, or too. there's uh, names for almost on every island all throughout the um, uh, Southeast Asia, but putting, drawing, uh, connecting dots between it and the hobbit, Homo floresiensis, um, we have the Yeti, if, if there is, in fact, um, uh, a hominoid involved there. Um, it could be a, a relic um just a great ape it's the the few pieces of uh, foot predominance we have for the for the yeti show a very divergent big toe a very ape like foot i mean it's clearly not a denizen of the snows of the high high elevations, but it's inhabiting it would be presumably inhabiting the the uh, subtropical forests in the valleys and is only seeing its footprints are seen as it's crossing passes from one valley to another. Anyway, so there, there are multiple branches, multiple iterations of relic hominoids, which, you know, there was a time, there was a time when I was kind of reluctant to even broach that topic. It was one thing to be discussing and investigating <laughs> one form, but then to suggest, oh, there might be, you know, uh, anywhere from four to five or six of these out there. Now, on the other hand, again, given context, it actually bolsters, in my opinion, it, the fact that there are these um, um, global occurrences, but which have distinctive differences, which have uh, really have a rational context within our, our growing understanding of the pattern of, uh, of hominin and hominoid uh, evolution, um, I, it it really uh, makes for a stronger case for each one individually in some ways. So, stepping back then from that, the the evidence uh, the that I you know that I would marshal to bolster the case for at least considering the possible existence and persistent existence of, of such species, um, given my background and expertise. And the nature of the evidence itself it's it's the footprint evidence that is by far the most compelling for me i have over 300 before
4: we before we dig into the footprints i wanted to play devil's advocate on one point that you brought up earlier Mm -hmm. um and that was the connection between um the uh uh, sort of i'm sorry i'm gonna mess up terms um but the sort of different branches of of that hominid evolution Mm -hmm. um and that uh, and and the existence of these like legends globally um, and that like we kind of our modern understanding of how evolution works, bolstering, um, um, uh, bolstering those claims. Um, if I was going to play devil's advocate to that, what I would say is we also, you know, that sounds very similar to me of the um, kind of global uh, or all near global um, appearance of uh, dragon legends, mm-hmm. right? And there's some... Uh, discussion that, um, you know, uh, uh, we, you know, we didn't find the first fossil ever in the, in the 1800s, right? Um, so so fossils have certainly been around, people could have dug them up. Um, and so there's some thought that like, people dug up saw a giant like dinosaur mm-hmm. fossil or saw that and that kind of spurred some of these legends. Um, and so you could think of something very similar of, of seeing uh, maybe seeing the the fossils or bones of of these uh, other hominid species mm-hmm. um, that humans found, um, and so uh, and and then these legends come out of those. So mm-hmm. um, uh, to to play devil's advocate to that point, it would be. Um, another perspective would be not necessarily the, the uh, persistent existence of those species, but the ancient existence of those species. Right. Um, or, or other things could... Right.
3: Uh, and if all we had were anecdotes, absolutely. I, I think you would be, you'd be absolutely justified. And I, and I wouldn't be probably sitting here having the conversation with you um, because it's, in my mind, well, it's, it's like I was actually confronted by a past chair, department mm-hmm. chair, who did not... Uh, take a shine to my enthusiasm for pursuing this line of inquiry. And at one point, he literally confronted me and said, Well, after all, Jeff, these are just stories. And I took a step back. I said, Well, I said, stories that apparently leave footprints, shed hair, void scat, vocalize, you know, <laughs> um, uh, are, are witnessed by not just every Joe on the street, but by sometimes by very uh, experienced outdoors persons, uh, trained uh, uh, scientists, observers, and so forth. I said, it's a little more to it than just stories. So you have to, uh, you know, I I felt uh, it's a reasonable expectation for science to uh, grapple with that evidence rather than just simply brush it aside as just being nothing but anecdotes. You know, this has been one of the things that has been problematic. I even wrote a paper with a colleague, Dr. the late Dr. John Bindernagel, who was a Canadian wildlife biologist, who uh, uh, you know was one of the few colleagues of mine who openly pursued this question. But we wrote a paper that that addressed the problem of associating the uh, question of Sasquatch with cryptozoology because of the stigma that's attached with that fringe discipline um you know there if if the nature of the evidence wasn't so different and distinct we might not have been justified in you know in writing such a, a, a paper but um when it's lumped in with the typical you know poster children of cryptozoology the yeti the the Loch Ness monster, and, and not to trivialize the potential. I mean, we've seen some really interesting science addressing the Loch Ness monster recently, and uh, using environmental DNA techniques to identify an, a, a potentially novel species of of uh, eel, freshwater eel, that might be at the at the root of uh, some of the sightings of of a creature in the Loch. But anyway, let's get into some
4: footprints. Sure. Yeah.
3: Okay. So footprint evidence. Um, You know, for those people, those uh, scientists who have taken a serious look, like Dr. John Napier, a primatologist, uh, Dr. Grover Krantz, you know, a physical anthropologist, um, it was the footprints primarily. Napier, in his words, in his book, one of the, you know, he was one of the first to really, um, uh, someone with his uh, credentials and um, position to write a serious objective evaluation of the evidence for the Obama snowman and the Sasquatch said he uh, was in the end convinced that there was something to the question of Sasquatch and it was the footprints he said something is leaving these footprints and so we've got this uh, trace evidence not physical evidence granted it's trace evidence but we have um, multiple examples now, like I said, nearly 300 uh, cataloged in my, in my laboratory, we've got um, uh, multiple examples of uh, single individuals, repeat appearances of single, recognizable individuals, Uh, but we have a diversity, you know, a demography, if you will, of the, of, of the species with uh, apparent male and female and, uh, and juveniles and, and infant examples of footprints that are distinct from, uh, from human. Um, these, uh, you know, there have been claims of hoaxing, um, in the past, the Wallace family, uh, were in Northern California, at least, uh, Ray Wallace and some of his family members were down there during the, the, uh, uh late fifties and early sixties, um, and have uh, their their his heirs have laid claim to having hoaxed many many of these footprints. If you take the time to look up some of the some of the uh, examples of their very crude carved wooden feet, which they allegedly strapped to their boots and tromped out these footprints, you'll see that they're they're very distinct, okay. very different so from the examples. That I trying.
4: certainly trust that you are able to distinguish between. Uh, uh a footprint left by like a real person and a crappy wooden wooden yeah. cutout right so i i that's not something i'm gonna like say so but well, so when you say footprints so like like yeah. help me out what do we got we got like draw so you you're doing field work you're going out or people that research for you or whatever how other researchers um, and you're going into like the forest and you find footprints in the mud. Mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. what what does that field work look like?
3: Well, sure. most you know <laughs> most discoveries of footprints and and most encounters for that uh, for that matter, um almost exclusively are uh, are are happened by chance, by happenstance. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. I mean, I go out, uh, yearly, uh, for at least a month at a time in, in often in very remote areas to do, to do field work, to try to, um, collect new evidence. And on some occasions have been successful. I've had about, I've found probably about uh, half a dozen, uh, sets of footprints, sometimes in very remote areas. Um, the, the, the first set that really pulled me into this was In 1996, I was shown them by another investigator who had found them by accident, and um, and uh, took me out, showed me these tracks. They were very fresh, Uh, uh, and and we're not talking about just one isolated footprint. But in this case, it was a long line of tracks, 35, 45 tracks. So, um, so yes, they're they're uh, uh, found under a variety of circumstances. these okay. are not just enlarged facsimiles of a human foot, mm-hmm. but they but they show very distinctive and remarkably consistent characteristics um, to someone uh, to to the trained eye that recognizes the underlying anatomy and the surface anatomy for that matter as well. The uh, okay.
4: can you
1: yep.
4: can you help me out? Like how how do you know that they're not? You know, because I know I know some some of the claims are based off of the size, but like mm-hmm. Shaquille O'Neal's got a real big foot, so like why why is Shaquille O'Neal's foot why is Shaquille O'Neal wearing a gorilla suit walking barefoot through the woods not a reasonable explanation for this? So why how do you know they're not human?
3: Because of the distinguishing characteristics, even uh, even uh, if size is not the limiting factor and if you know if you look at the distribution of of human foot length when you get above 12 inches you're down to you know fractions of a percent so those NBA basketball players are really very rare individuals in the human population as far as foot dimensions Um, the average uh, Bigfoot track adult uh, Bigfoot track is about 16 and a half inches in length and, and much broader that, and this is where the difference would be. Even if Shaquille had a 16 inch foot, um, it would be much narrower. It would be distinguished by one of the, uh, very consistent human characteristics. Uh, and that is the development of a pronounced longitudinal arch and, and the differentiation of the ball, the, uh, halical metatarsal phalangeal joint, the ball right at the base of the big toe. Um, uh, the Sasquatch tracks are probably, on average, about 25 percent wider than a human of, of similar length, um, and that you know makes sense as an adaptation to disperse this greater weight. I mean, not only you know they are not simply um, again enlarged human figures. Uh, even there, as as you know, the uh, you know mass increases to the cube of linear dimensions, whereas surface area to the square. Okay. And so there have to be uh, if if this is really a giant bipedal creature, then there would have to be anatomical differences, namely the lack of the arch that uh, that avoids the concentration of plantar pressure beneath the heel and the and the ball. And, uh, and greater breadth for greater surface area um, and different behavioral aspects. The other way to avoid excessive ground reaction forces uh, on these tissues is to, for example, walk with a compliant gait, a groucho gait, in other words, with the knees and hips and ankles flexed. And, uh, and interestingly, when we look at the Patterson-Gimlin film, she exhibits those very, very characteristics. Uh, of gait, not only the footprints are distinct, but the, uh, the aspects of the gait and the kinematics that are evident uh, in the film, uh, as we watch it uh, watch the foot move through a step. They're remarkably distinct in that way. So uh, there are other aspects, the toes, uh, the human toe proportions and, and configuration uh, is very distinct from, uh, from that of the Sasquatch. The Sasquatch has more subequal toe pads uh, of greater okay. length.
4: Sorry, so yeah. all they're t- the, the toes of these footprints. Um, so a h- human foot, right? Our toes are get, pinky toes, real small. Yeah. Um, are you saying that these are generally all of the toes are kind of longer than you would longer?
3: Expect yep. Longer and and greater yeah. greater surface area. And you're so, right. You know, one of the one of the Im- immediate tells of a human barefoot. Mm-hmm. A shoe-wearing human, mm-hmm. bare, walking barefoot, is that little pinky toe that gets turned completely on its side, almost mm-hmm. pressed in, nail pointing to the side instead of upward, and you can you know you can pick that out almost immediately in a in a human footprint, uh, whereas the Sasquatch, without that confining uh, shoe wear uh, mm-hmm. history, has a much greater range of not only splay of the toes but even of the metatarsal heads, which we see. Evidence of in, in humans to a degree, in uh, in ethnic populations that have uh, habitually been unshod. Um, oh, so I yeah, have, I have questions. <laughs> please, please, yeah.
4: Okay, you know. excellent. Um, okay, so uh, uh, when I'm so if I if I was if I saw a footprint and I knew enough to know like that's real big. It's way bigger than my foot. Mm -hmm. That doesn't quite look human to me, right? So um, kind of the thought process I would have or that I'm trying to like process this evidence with is, okay, so we have an observation. We have an observation of a footprint that doesn't quite seem to be human, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so what is uh, certainly an explanation for that evidence would be not human, right? Um, but my question would have to be like, why is the best explanation, if not the, I'm, I'm not going to hold you to the only explanation, right? Because, uh, because like magic, um, but like, so why is the best explanation um, of different species when, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, so, you know, you mentioned that um, it is certainly rare um, for a human to have a 16 inch long foot, but it is not unheard of. It's certainly pretty, pretty much,
3: pretty much. And, cool. and no one world looks... record
4: though is 18 and a half inches when measured diagonally. I looked it up.
3: <laughs> right. And and how, <laughs> how far could he walk? Oh, those, indi- yeah, those individuals that are that big, you know, as mm-hmm. when giantism expresses itself and you get a foot like that, uh, almost invariably they have remarkable. A breakdown of joints and extremities and and they walk with crutches or canes and if they can walk at all i uh, mean like so. the
4: individual i'm thinking of what would, would have been robert woodlow he lived in the 1940s he's in the guinness book of world records sure um he certainly was at least somewhat mobile i mean andre the giant is also a good example he certainly had giantism Yep. Um and so and
3: died young as a result of it as well.
4: well right, but you but, can die young and leave footprints of the world.
3: Yeah, water, oh sure. Right. Sure. But so I yeah.
4: Um. So that's not that's the uh. So if we know that like basketball player with flat feet who doesn't like shoes is a like um that is a type of person that could very feasibly exist. Right. So I said flat feet because you mentioned like the distinct arch um and that no, most human footprints have a distinct shape because like we wear shoes so right. but why can't there be so so why is you know a person with a genetic mutation that we know to exist such as giantism um and other like strangeness of the feet where right? there's a lot of diversity and how humans you know some some mm-hmm. people have six toes mm-hmm. um sure So I guess why is a, a certainly a rare person, right? Mm -hmm. But um, why is uh, a a human with giantism, um, uh, so not, and like, again, my question is, so these are two separate explanations for the same evidence, right? To me, a human with a genetic mutation um, or something such as giantism or a basketball player that doesn't like shoes, um, is more reasonable because we know that person exists. So why do we need, like to quote Sherlock Holmes, right? Uh, whenever right. you've uh, all, oh no, I'm gonna butcher it. And I love Sherlock Holmes oh, right. I, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, so like, it's the, whenever you've rolled out everything that's like rational or reasonable, then the extraordinary explanation that's left over a must be true, right? And so that's kind of what I'm, I'm looking for here yeah. is that so you're sort of proposing an extraordinary answer, mm-hmm. right? And so um, my question is kind of why are these like, why is something more ordinary? Like how how how, how, how do we rule out the right. ordinary and are only left with the extraordinary, so. Yeah, yeah.
3: right. Are you familiar with the movie Signs?
4: I am. I love that movie. Remember
3: that that scene when the sheriff arrives after the thing has been running on the roof? The mm-hmm. conversation that that uh, that the younger brother had with the sheriff. This reminds me of that. Well, ruling out a large uh, uh, Russian Olympia, olympian, olympian, <laughs> what is the likely? Right,
4: right. So yeah, so, so yeah. I, I'll, I'll,
3: uh, uh, So that I mean, I, you know, I I think it becomes a a bit of perception as to which is the more extraordinary explanation, in Mm -hmm. my mind, to, uh, to require to appeal to an extraordinary genetic mutation or NBA basketball player out in the middle of the woods, uh, walking around barefoot. Uh, to leave footprints that's a little more extraordinary than the possibility given all the other evidence yeah and that's the thing there's this this problem of reductionism and mm-hmm. and and uh, isolating individuals um there was uh, you know michael shermer well i think it was if i'm attributing this correctly um uh, you know took exception to to any eyewitness account because you know you he was saying you can sit and pick and pick and pick and 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 dissect that individual account and so it goes in the waste bin and then you do that to the next one he said so a pile of of uh, un- incredible anecdotes isn't worth anything well that's mm-hmm. absolutely wrong if you have consistent threads especially in an era be- that predates the internet and social media when people didn't have any concept of, you know, uh, of a, a public idea of what Bigfoot was, what the, what the icon uh, entailed, and yet these same descriptions independently keep popping up. I mean, that's important pattern, that's important mm-hmm. uh, replication, and, and, you know, the the attitude of Shermer is absolutely wrong. So, Again, if we isolate this one instance of a big footprint and you try to explain that one away with this extraordinary, well, then you've got to be able to apply that to all the others. So you don't have this rare instance of this rare individual leaving this one rare footprint, but you would have to invoke all of these rare instances repeating themselves through decades of time and over huge geography and found, you know, described by independent people. Um, re- repetitively, and so I mean, then it, it does become, in my mind, it become that becomes extraordinary. And and um, and besides the fact that, again, we're not looking at the footprint of an NBA basketball player because because and you acknowledged, and, and you you know I, I'm grateful to you for making that acknowledgement that not only can I tell the difference between a carved wooden board strapped to a hiking boot, but I can also tell the difference between a human footprint and something that is atypical of a human footprint completely atypical of a human footprint and so uh, we're not just looking at a big human footprint Um, you know I've got examples of some of the big basketball players here at the university who came in uh, when they would take a class I'd give them a couple of extra points they'd come in my lab and make a mold of their foot so I've got some 13 and 14 inch human footprints and they look like bananas Mm -hmm. they're they're so narrow and arched and and uh you hold one of those up to one of these sixteen inch by seven inch, you know, flat, uh broad, immensely broad feet, and there's just no comparison. Mean, well there's a comparison, but I mean the contrasts are so vivid, so evident that uh that you really you really can't um okay. so uh you know
4: if we wanna go, go ahead. Gotcha. And I I I uh sorry the dog jumped up ran away okay. um, no problem. so um so for me right uh, the part of the footprint that like that would convince me right that mm-hmm. this like isn't human is um, uh, what most things in scientific science land would convince me of which is to see uh, like I, I certainly accept your expertise um, but to um, uh, what's the word, um, de- definitively, definitively mm-hmm. say that those like aren't human, what I would really want to see would be uh, a, a journal, you know, scientific journal discussions of like, hey, we found this um, a se- series of papers looking at a series of footprints, right? So obviously, this isn't something that we can do in a debate um, uh, or right. type discussion, but like that. um Uh, So I'm not 100% convinced because I'm being very skeptical um, that these these, like can't be human. Um, But I do like to say like what would convince me and what would convince me would be to see sort of a scholarly consensus. Not necessarily that these are Bigfoot, but these footprints or these series of footprints are not human and see kind of uh, multiple scholarship, multiple scholars agree on that
3: well, that's the problem, though, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. when you when you have a hypothesis, and you know, and, and we don't have to limit this uh, analogy to Sasquatch. I mean, you can look at the history of science, and and uh, there are numerous different examples where uh, we just had <laughs> here, here a little little aside. I just served on an academic freedom uh, subcommittee. We were tasked with uh, revisiting and, and revising and uh, uh, redrafting the university's policy on academic freedom and this one member of the committee had uh, had uh, drawn heavily from a particular source although she asserted some of her own verbiage which was what caused the, the catch but she wanted to include this final wrap-up statement uh, of academic the, the responsibilities of academic freedom but the phrase that that I objected to was that um, you know that Faculty had the responsibility to, to convey information, which is generally accepted by their dis, in their discipline. And I said, wait a minute. That's just absolutely antithetical to our, the whole point of, of an academic freedom policy. Because there are numerous theories or, or hypotheses that are out there that are very unpopular. Or that even, you know, what do we do? 51%? agree with this hypothesis, so we can teach that, but if there's only 49%, there's not a majority, then we can't mention that in class, you know, so um, there are academic papers that have been published. I have been successful in getting some published, Um, but I'm up against a wall because uh, there are very few people who are capable or willing to objectively evaluate a paper on the merits of its evidence without grappling with the implications see it's just it's just like the early viewings of the Patterson Gimlin film they're looking at there and they're sitting there and they're saying gee if we say this is real we're going against I mean that overturns the prevailing paradigm that isn't the consensus of our discipline and so they come out and they say really ridiculous things for someone for an anthropologist to say one of them said oh it has hair on its breasts Primates generally have naked breasts, therefore it must be fake. Well, this Mm -hmm. gentleman must not have been married, and he must not have been getting any because If you have goosebumps on your breasts, ladies, you have hairs on your breasts, to put it bluntly. It's the most inane statement for an anthropologist to say. Another one came out and said, well, it's got breasts like a female, but it walks like a man. So it must be a hoax. Well, why do human females walk like human females? Because of the obstetric constraints of a large birth canal that that spread the acetabula apart and and give them that little waddle, that little um, um, walk. If you have a small brain, a Bigfoot would have more man-like hips. So the things that they were saying to try to justify their rejection uh, were just... <laughs> They were totally. I, I, based certainly, that. I
4: certainly, I certainly agree that anytime that. you have, um, maybe fringe isn't quite the right word, but um, a a science is always evolving. What we sure. understand. Oh, like, I know. Especially yeah. when you're on, you know, the level uh, when you're on kind of the frontiers of science, um, and yeah. so certainly you have a very, you're pushing a rock up a very steep hill, um, and I, I uh, in terms of having. The papers and so the fact that you've been yeah. able to have papers published I think uh, lends credence to your point um, but I know we've been talking for, for quite a while and that the most interesting bit of evidence to me that you brought up that I'd be really interested in talking some more about was specifically DNA because to me oh, that yeah. would be uh, that would be sort of the silver bullet um, One would think, of
2: then. you
4: would think of of, yeah. of because again not a biologist but it's pretty right. easy to tell like human not human
3: Right. Well, uh, <laughs> actually not.
4: Uh, actually not. Okay. Not well, so then let's because learn some about DNA.
3: Well, I mean, if if we're if we're dealing with a species mm-hmm. that is, uh, say, a hominin, as opposed mm-hmm. to say something like an extant Gigantopithecus that's more aligned with the Pongidae, then then the difference between us and them is going to be really small. Now, yes, we've been, we can tell the difference between us and Denisovans and us and Neanderthals, um, where we've been able to extract DNA from those fossils, uh, but it's okay. a very s- small amount. So what happens, all, all I'm saying is what happens mm-hmm. is, is um, much of the DNA work that has been done to date has been mm-hmm. underwritten by a documentary. And, and they only have a limited budget, so they only look at maybe a mitochondrial gene. And what do they come up with? Almost all DNA that's been that's been uh, attributed, drawn, mm-hmm. uh, extracted from hair, primarily, when, when successful. Uh, and it's very challenging. The hairs that are attributed to Sasquatch. One of the unifying characteristics that that uh, that exists, it seems, is the lack of a cellular medulla, the central. Shaft of the hair where there's the remnants of uh, of cellular nuclei.
4: Okay, um, sorry before because I I think we're gonna get into some weeds and you're already kind of losing me in some specifics. So I kind of okay. want to um well, again thinking of playing like audience advocate a little bit or yeah.
3: uh, okay, All right, so so the, the point simply is we're talking mm-hmm. potentially about a species that may be so close to us That the difference may be a tenth of a percent. Okay, and in order to detect that difference, and I've consulted recently mm-hmm. out of frustration with numerous geneticists, disinterested or otherwise, and their their consensus is, yeah, to to separate species like that, you're going to want to do the entire mitochondrial genome and at least a half a dozen to a dozen nuclear genes. So okay. we're talking about, you know, yeah. a so major project that has never me, been undertaken.
4: Let me just back something up really fast. So. Um, just so that I can make sure that I understand. So let's say I went on vacation to the Amazon and I came home with two beetles. And I think that they are of the same species of beetle, that they're the same kind of beetle or sorry, whatever. I just tried to make up a simple animal. I don't know. Um, and I also think that they are a unique species, right? This isn't anything. Lots and lots of beetles exist. I know it's a beetle, but I think this is a distinct species of beetle. And I wanted to prove that with DNA. Yep. So, what I would—can you give me like the explain it to like a like a college freshman or maybe high school well, student? Yeah. How do we do it?
3: Well, sure. You would you will, of course you would you would extract the DNA and then you would look for distinguishing markers that differentiate those mm-hmm. potentially very closely related species. And uh, and in some instances, that's that's very straightforward. Once you once you find those points on the genome that harbor the distinctive differences in in nucleotide sequence, okay? And that, it could be that straightforward with a potential Sasquatch uh, sample, tissue sample, like hair or scat or skin or blood, if someone would actually do that. Now I've reached out and offered to finance, I've got people Mm -hmm. who would pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, to a number of different labs and um, what i continually run into as mm-hmm. we talked about is they're unwilling to, to take it on there's okay. so much uh, pressure publish or perish mm-hmm. these that the, the reputable labs uh even those and especially those working in hominoid uh, systematics or you know uh, dna sequencing for various projects they um they don't want to do it They don't want to do it because they don't want to have a graduate student or postdoc spinning, spinning their wheels, so to speak, Mm -hmm. on a project, a risky project like controversial, like that. And they don't want the stigma that's associated with even acknowledging that there may be some possibility. Uh, Okay,
4: so sorry, just to step it back a second. So we, we sequence the DNA of my beetle in this hypothetical example. Yep. and then we compared it to the dna of like lots of different other beetles and we found that like this bit this little part of the genome right. is distinct and isn't in the other beetles is that the simplified version of what we're talking about
3: basically yes i mean you're okay. you're, you're looking for so you're looking derived some
4: type of yep. genetic <laughs> okay so precisely when if we're going to move over to uh, uh, Bigfoot, um, what I'm hearing you say is that you have uh, some DNA samples that you think are attributed to, you have uh, like like uh, hair or something which you could extract DNA from that you believe to be attributed to Bigfoot, but has been unable to get it sequenced because of reluctance from the labs is that an accurate summary
3: pretty close the the okay. one that we just no you no know, you know, you're you're right on except for one qualify okay. one little caveat in there and that is mm-hmm. we we we're not confident that we have any dna sample we have okay. tissue samples potential tissue samples okay but that's the problem you know as an anatomist i look mm-hmm. at this hair under the microscope and i can't i can't attribute it to any other mammal out there in the woods except a human, but it's distinct in some ways from human. For example, it's got a a worn tip that's ne- apparently never been cut. It's got a, an acellular medulla consistently across samples, which only appear in some individuals of humans, especially individuals with very fine uh, blonde hair, toeheads often have an acellular medulla. Uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 medulla gives more stiffness coarseness to the guard hairs of of large of, of other mammals, um, and so on. Those rare occasions when we do get DNA, mm-hmm. um, what happens is when they test it, it comes back as human, and it's it's uh, it's uh, explained rationalized as okay. contamination okay. mm-hmm. or um, misidentification. Mm -hmm. but the third possibility that isn't discussed that isn't you know is the elephant in the room is did you test it enough to really differentiate it from human if it were different could Mm -hmm. you recognize that it was different based on the test that was
4: actually going to be my question my question was going to be like the margin of error of the test compared to the difference from the species to because so it would be a very large number if it had a one percent margin of error but if the difference between the species you're looking at and a human is 1% difference then the differences would be within the margin of error of the test right if that's that would that was actually my where oh, right. my had immediately yeah. jumped
3: to and it's not just uh, uh, the the error of the test but rather mm-hmm. but rather you know you've got um you know here's a real simple example you have something Mm -hmm. like an advent's calendar you know with all these little little doors that are windows onto the gene sequence Mm -hmm. and your test is only opening one door now Mm -hmm. if if there are only and you've got say a hundred doors and you've got maybe five differences that that distinguish the sasquatch from human Mm -hmm. and but you can only turn one door because that's only only test you're going to do well, what are okay. the odds? It's like going on The Price is Right and playing Plinko or something, you know. What are the odds of that door you turning finding? You know, if what you see looks just like human, it's identical mm-hmm. to human. And mm-hmm. so the parsimonious response would be the 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 less extraordinary answer is it's human. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it's not because you just because you haven't. You haven't turned open enough doors. And that's, that's what I was getting at in discussing this with other, okay. other geneticists is giving the potential closeness, mm-hmm. the potential almost identity between these two samples. You've got to do a lot of t- testing to be sure one way or the other. And we're not to that point yet. Okay. So one of my big pushes in, in my personal research is to the, the burgeoning field of environmental DNA. Mm-hmm. Where you can go out and take a soil sample or a water sample, and they can use this shotgun approach, you know, and, and identify with these probes all these different s- potential species out there. And then when there's an indication of such, they can do a more extensive examination.
0: Okay. Real One quick,
3: thing I... guys,
2: I just wanted to let you know. Oh, sorry, James and I, we probably having the same idea. I was going to say we're at about 50 minutes by my account, 52 ish for the open discussion. Um, so just letting y'all know where we're at. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs>
1: One thing, too, with that is Mm -hmm. that we this is something I think the audience would definitely find interesting is the Patterson Gimlin film is something that we haven't discussed too much in terms of like the critiques of it, the defenses of it. And so what I would like to do is if it's okay with you guys, just as kind of bringing this as a kind of a key point up to the, uh, the front of the screen in a literal way. So what I can do here is if you guys are okay with it, I can screen share both in the Zoom just so you can see the window that I have here, as well as what I have here is on OBS, I'm going to flip it over so that people can see it as well. So if it's okay, I would just like to show people just a short clip of what you guys are seeing here on Zoom as well. And then if it'd be okay for us to talk about those critiques. And this is, like I said, a very short clip. So it's only a few seconds that I'm going to show, but something I think the audience, like I said, would get, uh, find really interesting. So own sightings here in Australia. We don't call them Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Here we call them Yowie's. So let's have a look at this famous footage. So that snippet right there that I just showed is from that kind of classic film that I think a lot of people recognize in pop culture references and other other places. So wanted to see if I could get your guys' kind of feedback on that. So what I'm going to do is switch it over and thanks so much for humoring us on this really interesting topic sure
4: if you don't mind um i'd kind of like to to start because i know you have a lot more to say than i oh, sure. do so i, I sort of want to bring up um uh so I, I, again as with the footprint what i'm seeing here is this is like we have an observation we have an observation we have a video of some type of uh bipedal furry creature um and you know, so uh, so then, what is the best explanation or the most reasonable explanation, or maybe not most reasonable? Let's say what's the best explanation uh, for what we just saw, um, and uh, I to me, um, so so uh, the video by itself. Um, so why is again like Shaquille O'Neal or his grandpa maybe because that was in the '70s wore a gorilla suit and went for a hike like so why is that um or even like a human we know that there exist genetic mutations which cause like lots of excess hair to grow um and so the uh if we assume that it's not faked if we you know if, if I'll, I'll grant all of those things like we saw this video of something so why is the best explanation for that um the existence of sort of a novel a, a new novel species um would be kind of my main my main question if i was trying to look at that very objectively and again um we could talk about whether or not it's faked like all day long but if we're going to make the assumption that it's not faked
3: okay. um, yeah well that's a generous starting point
4: for <laughs> <population>. <laughs> but i, I think uh, it's more interesting if we yeah. well that's I mean, uh, you could yeah. fake anything right
3: no Uh, actually not you can't (laughs) you really um, can't especially when you're limited by the resources you have and here's where the context is so important
5: you -hmm. know
3: because you're a generation that's been raised with cgi and these animatronics and all this remarkably amazing stuff this is 1967 this is the same year that the first not the remakes the first planet of the apes was released Mm-hmm. Now think about the costumes there. John Chambers got a honorary uh, uh, Oscar for his pioneering work creating these simplistic little injected foam rubber appliances that made the the contours of the face of these apes. I mean, it was that was unheard of previously. I mean, before that, you had these ridiculous looking costumes like, uh, oh, the now uh, the. Uh, uh, Mugatu, I got it. The Mugatu on on Star Trek. Remember the ape with the horn that mm-hmm. bites Captain mm-hmm. Kirk, and you can see the seams. You can see the the neck and everything. I mean, it's so transparently um, fake. You know, it's interesting when, um, and I don't mean to to digress with the, the hoax, but but it it for me the the question devolves more meaningfully to that than it mm-hmm. does to. Again, to, to, to uh, invoke some extraordinary human individual, it would be a, an individual that, is, um, that has never been witnessed before or since. Um, uh, there, there are reams and reams of data, anthropometric data, the dimensions and proportions of people. Uh, various ethnicities that have been measured for military mm-hmm. in order to make uniforms, et cetera, the ergonomics of aircraft, cockpits, et cetera, et cetera. And you can go and look up and and not just the height, this creature was, you know, given that 14 and a half inch foot, 15 inch foot scale, this creature probably was just at or, or slightly under seven feet tall. But probably if you, if you measure the proportions and the volume that's evident there, it weighed nearly 800 pounds. You know if you just uh, and because what you don't see in that view is the mm-hmm. enfoss, the, the AP, the anterior posterior view. This thing has 36 inch shoulders. It has you know a chest that, uh, well, it has a, a thigh that I could put my chest inside. You you don't get the 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 mm-hmm. the sense of the dimensions, but there are no humans alive, present or past that that uh, could even fill a suit, fill so, the volume of that of that creature.
4: Okay, I might have to push on that a little bit. Um, so I've done some research. Uh, I did my undergraduate thesis on measuring craters on the moon, um, and what was very cool was I got to use. Um, satellite data, like satellite altimetry data to like measure these craters. And that was kind of a big deal because before this particular satellite, um, all we had was photos from Apollo era, right? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of what we're talking about. Um, And um, if I'm thinking about what you're able to, what I was, what, what was able to be able to do, right? Because I had read a lot about Um, getting data out of kind of like historical footage Mm -hmm. from that time. And this would have been like the absolute best cameras and things, Um, certainly not what, uh, you know, local just average Joe Mm -hmm. could have been able to afford. Um, You could not tell if a crater was convex or concave, right? Like you couldn't tell if this was a mound or a crater half the time, um, right? (laughs) Right. Um, and so, uh, uh, given the quality of the footage, I, I, I'm not. I am very unconvinced that you are able to determine those types of things that you're describing, given limitations of like perspective, angle. Um, and when I say anything can be faked, I mean like with uh, uh, you can do a lot. Um, there's only so much data you can pull out of a picture. There's Correct. only so much data you can pull out of a pixel. Um, mm-hmm. And it, 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 so it, it, I'm very wary of, sure. granted, I would need to to be able to say like, to be able to talk about like, hey, those methods, I'm not sure about that. Um, but I, uh, I would need to read a lot on the methodology if we're thinking like scientific paper type of thing mm-hmm. um, on how that was determined. but um, I'm very wary of the technological capabilities of being able to pull that kind of data from a camera.
3: Well, I, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't know exactly how to how to respond to that. It's the the make and model of the camera were known. the the mm-hmm. film stock was the best. Uh, finest grain stock available in 1967 the the film is in focus contrary to all the uh, all of the uh, um, uh, you know uh, comments I'm I'm spoiled
4: I I, I get right I get 4k video right Um, and so, so like I'm not anyway
3: well, this is, this is a, remember, this is not a video, this is a, a cinematography. This is, this is a, an emulsion oh,
4: series of photos. film.
3: Okay. Yeah, series of stills. So um, it stands up under scrutiny much, much, much better than a video image does. Even, granted, uh, the, the quality that you're describing, but, you know, someone's video camera off the shelf, uh, you know, inter interlacing between fields and so forth, you... There's a lot more noise than what you have in in, in this. The, the the blurriness. There's some motion mm-hmm. blur because mm-hmm. the film was shot at a uh, a lower uh, frame rate than was typical for broadcast uh, um, standards at that time. Instead of 22 frames per second, it's been determined and quite convincingly by. It independent means that it was somewhere between 16 and 18 frames per second but but what you have is you've got a 16 millimeter film frame you mm-hmm. have a, a creature on that film that exposed film that's uh, you know 1.8 millimeters tall mm-hmm. and you're blowing it up to that size on the screen that was a pretty good clip that he showed but that's mm-hmm. not the best quality of the image that, that we have to work with um, uh, but anyway so I would just come back and say that I'm quite confident. Yes, there's a margin of error, mm-hmm. uh, the graininess of the film when you enlarge it. Now, for for these for, for pre-graininess folks out there, grain would be comparable to pixels, but it's not discrete discrete squares, squares. of uh, right. of data. It's it's the crystalline nature of the uh, chemical emulsion on the plastic film platen that responds to the exposure to light. Um, and so when you blow it up, it starts to get grainy. The image, mm-hmm. the boundaries are, are a little bit hazy. So there's, there is a margin of error, I'll, I'll grant you that. But even allowing for that margin of error on there, we still can, I mean, we can, you know, we can put calipers on that, that foot as it comes up and shows the sole of the foot. We have the corresponding footprints from the sandbar, from the location mm-hmm. that have been documented quite extensively, actually. Uh, over 12 12 casts were made of the prints and photographs and so forth um can and they can be lifted from the the film as as well um so you know sure there's a margin of error so we we Mm -hmm. could be off
4: okay so so what you're saying is that because my my biggest 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 thing right there was uh if you have a two-dimensional image right what how do you measure measure anything how do you you know, how do you, how do you tell if something was six feet tall or 12 feet tall, right? Because it has to do with perspective and you lose that third dimensional data. So you have to compare it to something that, you know, the height or the size of, and you know, the distance from, and there's trigonometry.
3: Exactly. Um, yeah. Well, we have so that, is, we have the ready-made scale in the length of the foot. And as long okay, as we that can was com- my question. confidently associate the foot on that mm-hmm. subject, whatever it is with the footprints that are seen being left and were documented after the fact. And I'm quite confident. I mean, you can put the cast right up to the Mm -hmm. outline of the foot and it it matches point for point. Um, uh, So we have that scale. And then they've been able to using photogrammetry, you don't go back to the scene with a Jacob staff and with various uh, people who have done this, uh, models standing in place or walking in place Mm-hmm. uh using the same type of camera um, they with trigonometry calculate where the photographer was standing mm-hmm. and then you can superimpose those frames and convince yourself that or not convince yourself demonstrate mathematically mm-hmm. that yes it it uh, it was bigger and bulkier and and uh, uh, much more massive than the human subject walking in its stead so anyway um
1: yeah,
4: so I would certainly give... I would certainly grant the height of the creature right um based on everything we just talked about I, I'm very skeptical um I'm very skeptical of mass calculations um and a volume well, calculation well
3: we we have views we have views when it's walking at mm-hmm. an angle we have views when it's completely on its side we have mm-hmm. views of it uh, walking away and trailing um with a complete backside Uh, you know uh, parallel to the to the film platen so it's not like we're trying to extrapolate from from just Mm -hmm. one perspective but there but there are multiple perspectives Um, and so and so the those dimensions I mean even if you only had two dimensions Mm -hmm. and and you underestimated you know, mm-hmm. just, just imagine that, it, that the body, you know, for approximation, that the body was a series of cylinders, the torso, right. the head, the, the, the uh, extremity segments were just a, a series of, of segments. And, and e- extrapolated from that, um, you, you can come up with a pretty good ballpark estimate of the volume, and then we know the, you know, the relative density of, of, of typical muscle and bone mm-hmm. tissue. And again, not it's a ballpark. But right.
4: uh well even, and even if the number the number you floated for the weight was like 800 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm thinking I, the person I threw out earlier would have been Andre the Giant. And I know he weighed like five hundred and fifty. Well,
3: uh-huh. I'd be surprised if it was that much, but
4: uh Well, that's what Apple Wikipedia check it. said.
3: That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so he could have been five hundred and fifty, yeah, but
4: yeah. Hey, um, and yeah. so like, if we're thinking, because that when we're comparing that, something like that, like, um, margin of error is going to matter, right? Because margin of error here, how big the margin of error on that mass estimate tells me if we're in a range, which is possible to be human or not. Right. And I think that really, really, really matters here. Well, it does. It does. It does. Could this be a human?
3: Yes. Right. Right. You're right. But again, we're we're kind of back. We we've spiraled back Mm -hmm. to the same position we were in the uh, footprint discussion, and that is, Mm -hmm. you know, what are the chances that Roger Patterson was able to conscript? And Andre the Giant to go down to mm-hmm. Bluff Creek with him, and why would he go clear down to Bluff Creek mm-hmm. to do this, to pull this off? You know, when there's lots of other locations that would be much more convenient to him, and 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 you know, it just I I, I think that 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 it begs the question, the real question, what what are we looking at there, mm-hmm. uh, and and is it what was expected in 1967, or or mm-hmm. was it at odds? You know, it was interesting when, when uh, go back to John Napier again, um, in his book, where, where he came down favorably on the side of the possible existence of Sasquatch, he was uh, negative on the film. Mm-hmm. He couldn't justify or rationalize that that feeling, except on one point that he iterated, mm-hmm. uh, that he stated clearly in his book. He said, when I look at what's there, I, he said, from the waist up, it's, it's generally like a grade eight, like a gorilla. From the waist down, it's typically human. He said, it is almost impossible to conceive that such a hybrid of structure would exist in nature.
5: Mm-hmm. So
3: one half or the other must be false. Well, if one half or the other's false, the whole thing's a hoax. Well, about a year later, the book was published in 1973. A year later, the popular press was heralding the announcement of the discovery of Lucy mm-hmm. Australopithecus afarensis one of the more complete specimens that that absolutely demonstrated the bipedal adaptations of lower extremity in this early bipedal hominin. And how did the popular press describe it? Or how how was it described to the popular press? From the waist up, it looks just like a chimpanzee. From the waist down, it looks just like a human. Isn't it interesting how evolution has put together this unexpected combination of traits? Well, now, wait a minute. Just a year ago, that was the linchpin. That was the linchpin to the rejection of the film by John Napier. What if he'd waited a couple of years before he published his book? That would have been an indefensible argument against the film, because now we know that early hominins combined those very characteristics that we see in Patty. In fact, if I was going to write an introductory anthropology text, Mm -hmm. and I wanted an illustration of what I envisioned or what science envisions Mm -hmm. early hominins to look like, the combination of characteristics, the unusual limb proportions, the combination of of a more ape-like cranium, small brain, big, deep jaws. I mean, a robust australopithecine, I could use that picture and it would be absolutely perfect if it didn't have the stigma attached to it that the current notoriety carries with it. In 1967, we didn't have that concept of what early hominins looked like. But now, it's absolutely in lockstep with what we think. How is that? Is that just coincidence? I mean, you know, you could, and I can go down a whole list of these things where what we see in the film, combinations, unusual combinations of traits, the flat face with reduced Mm -hmm. canines, That, that doesn't make sense. Canines only got small as the hominin dentition our jaws got smaller um a foot that has a flat flexible instep but a non-divergent big toe that's an unheard of combination of tra- Well, it was until my my interpretation of the laetoli prince is finally starting to get some traction that the early hominins did walk on flat flexible feet clear up through homo erectus you know all the no Give, give Roger that he got one thing right by pure chance, but he got six right by, by pure chance, anticipating unusual combination of traits, which we now fully accept in the hominin fossil record, but didn't know about in 1967. I mean, Sorry. I would have expected, I would have expected a, a miniature King Kong. Like you said, a Shaq O'Neal, Shaquille O'Neal in a gorilla suit. You show me a gorilla suit that comes even close to that
1: <laughs> what we'll you do know. is, if uh, Maddie, we can give you the last word, and then we want to jump into the Q&A. So thank you both, okay. Dr. Meldrum and Maddie. I want to remind you. you folks, their links are in the description. I have put them there, and they're there so that you can either hear more or read more from our guests. We really appreciate them. And so this has been a great time. And so, as I mentioned, Maddie, we'll give you a chance to respond, and then we'll jump into the Q&A.
4: Okay, I actually – I'm going to accidentally, I think, make a point for you because i wanted to summarize something you just said um because i was it was taking me a second to understand so is, is is what you're saying that there were six specific traits observed in the video we watched of the creature mm-hmm. in the video we watched that like humans specifically don't have and like a gorilla that had escaped from the zoo wouldn't have had right right okay yep. So there's six specific traits that are, like, humans don't have this. No other, like, living primate has these things. Or, like, let's just stick with humans. Humans don't um, have these things.
3: Co- combinations of traits.
4: Combinations of traits. Okay. Yeah. Um And video came out. And since then, we've discovered those specific six traits in uh, now extinct hominid species. Is mm-hmm. that what you, that's yep. what you said? Okay. Yep. <laughs> that was... Uh, so that's really cool. Uh-
3: <laughs> I know. I, it is. It is. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, we, we sit, because you can you can sit mm-hmm. and, and, like I said, you can sit and debate the intricacies of the detail and argue, well, it's, it could have been hoaxed mm-hmm. or no, it could not. But when you step back and you consider it in the context, mm-hmm. this broader context, it's like, how could they have possibly come? Come up with this in 1967. I mean, not only the the the, the costume aspects. Mm. Uh, you know, we we can talk about that, but I think we want to go get on to something else here. But but yeah. the but the anatomical traits. Uh, it, I, it just, I mean, you know, I'm I'm as convinced as I can be, short of having stood there on the sandbar at the time this occurred, that this is the real deal. If all I had were the footprints that they cast. And photograph Mm -hmm. from the site i would be convinced but to have both of them in tandem Mm -hmm. and all these other characteristics it's just it 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 blows my mind i mean anyone who says oh that's just a man in a fursuit is simply wearing their ignorance on their shirt sleeve that's all i can i can't put it any more bluntly because it is not just a man in a fursuit it's anything Mm -hmm. but you know and attempts have been made to try to replicate it and they're, they're, they're laughable. I mean, they're, with today's materials, they didn't have four-way stretch fur. They didn't have foam rubber. They didn't have the spandex, you know, that used in undergarments to make these armatures of musculature and so forth. They just didn't have those things back then. So when you see a costume, an attempt with just regular fur cloth, it looks like hairy pajamas. And it hangs like Harry Paget with, with, you know, like my shirt with, with pleats and folds and straight lines instead of contours because they didn't have form-fitting, you know, materials back then. Anyway, sorry. you get me going on that one. <laughs> we'll, uh, um, where yeah, do you want to take it, James?
4: I just wanted to clarify that point and I'm I'm good to move into questions if that's where we're at.
1: You got it. Uh, did you say that like past tense or future tense? Did you say you want to clarify a point or? No, no, no. No, she he, didn't.
4: He, clar- I, he clarified.
1: Oh, gotcha. Okay, thanks very it. much. And we'll jump right into it with Loris K. Psalms 25 says, Dr. Meldrum, I saw a show with a forensic hominid. Oh, and by the way, uh, Erica, in case you didn't see, I sent you the, the question list in Twitter. So they said, Dr. Meldrum, I saw a show with a forensic hominid hominid ridge print specialist who evaluated all of the ridge print evidence for bigfoot and determined it was a living species is that evidence documented
3: uh yes well yes uh just not fully published there's some examples that are provided in my book this was doctor not doctor officer jimmy chilcutt who was a latent fingerprint examiner who also to his credit was very interested in the, um, the uh, implications of variation in primitive ridge detail in non-human primates for his interpretation of human. So he, he on his own time, he would go and literally <laughs> uh, fingerprint um, great apes, chimps, gorillas, and orangs, while they were anesthetized for their annual uh, physical exams. He, he said one time a guy came in and says what, you're fingerprinting the apes? He says yeah, I'm trying to solve the banana heist. <laughs> but anyway, he did. He, he was quite impressed with what he saw. I mean, he, he, uh, when I turned him loose in my lab, he quickly identified those which had some, some uh, trace expression of, of dramatic lithics. They're rare because you have to have a substrate that's fine enough to pick up that fine detail in the print. It has to survive long enough for that print to be discovered. And it has to be cast by someone that is skilled enough to to carefully make that cast so that it transfers to the cast and is preserved and isn't over and vigorous with brushing or cleaning, washing, and destroy that fine detail. Anyway, but um, but but he uh, we haven't written up um, the the results for a you know a, a formal publication, but it has been mentioned, like I said, in my book and elsewhere but he did I mean we after we were his his first day in my lab we went to lunch we were sitting there and, and he got very uh reflective and he's looking off in the distance and then he turns to me and he says Jeff these things really do exist what are you gonna do about it <laughs> <laughs> well, doing what I can you know I'm trying to understand them better learn more about them but I mean like I said it's not my goal to I'm not proselytizing <laughs> or or trying to make converts. I'm just uh, analyzing the data, evaluating the data.
2: On the stoner, Lynn has a question for you, uh, Dr. Meldrum, and they asked if you believe in any other cryptids, and I think they're mostly referring to like non-hominin cryptids.
3: Yeah, well, they, they must have missed my little sermonette about belief because <laughs> I wouldn't uh, admit it uh, in those in those terms. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about uh, other cryptozoological entities or cryptids and uh, but certainly I didn't enter into this investigation as a cryptozoologist I entered as an anthropologist and biologist and and it's the it's the hominin or slash hominoid perhaps uh, nature of this question that has attracted me so others are just avocational or you know passing interests I think it's fascinating when new species are discovered you know it demonstrates that there still are spaces that harbor uh, uh yet to be discovered fauna and uh and that's always uh, intriguing to me
1: gotcha and i have a question thanks for that answer and thanks for that question new one from fact-based living just came in so i'm going to quick kind of interweave this in our question list erica and feel free to read the next one on the list right after this this was you asked we have done hundreds of mosquito surveys. None have turned up unknown primate DNA yet. We have found many other new species this way. Does Sasquatch have, let's see. I think they're asking like, why would this be? And maybe you feel, maybe you think that, uh, this might be answered by what you earlier mentioned, but I'll give you a chance to respond. Yeah. to it.
3: Well, no, I, that, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm intrigued to hear that and where, where they're conducting their research and, and, um, how extensive it is because part of this project that we're that i'm hoping to get off the ground once we get past covid and can get out in the field more consistently um it also included in addition to sampling um water and soil we were also going to do uh surveys collection mass collections of mosquitoes with that very thought in mind so please ask them to uh reach out and email me get in touch with me directly i'd love to talk more about uh, that their project with them um so so that, that that raised a couple of the points where are they doing it and how extensively are they doing it um because if if you're you know in the wrong place <laughs> you're not going to uh be sampling mosquitoes that might have bumped into a sasquatch the other thing is is the rarity factor i mean the, the all if if we hold the non-existence at bay for just a moment if they exist and we're, we're wondering why sample hasn't been found um, uh, a common denominator to a lot of those questions about, you know, where is the conclusive physical evidence? Where is the remains? Where are the bones and body? Uh, I think that common denominator is their rarity. We're talking about a large bodied primate with um, a natural history that we I think we can safely infer for the sake of discussion or consideration. Uh, from that, those variables bracketed by um, characteristics of living gradients in and humans, and so they're probably rather long-lived, reproducing frequently, and develop slowly, and so they're sustained with a, a, a lower number um, than other animals like that are lower in the food chain. For example, like ungulates or rodents or so forth. Um, I mean, for example, without going into the details for the sake of time, but but uh, taking clues from their possible behavior, solitary behavior, you know, based on the appearance of footprints of single individuals and eyewitness sightings and so forth. Um, and, and the amount of calories an animal that size would need, a home range that would be suitable um, without, again, uh, it's hard to say without going in and not going into it. But say, taking my home state of Idaho, I would come up with an estimated Sasquatch population for the sake of conversation a straw man if you will of about 150 to 300 but there's 35,000 black bear estimated in the state of Idaho so <clears throat> you know I'd be really interested to see if, if they're in similar habitat then how many what's what's the how many samples of black bear DNA did they get from their mosquito sampling and if there's you know a magnitude of order less a sasquatch out there then what are the odds that the sasquatch is going to turn up in such a survey that's an apologist's explanation but i i think it, it's a reasonable one to at least <laughs> uh entertain um
4: well and that's i would certainly grant cool. I just oh, hearing you it's yep. certainly... please go
5: ahead
2: Sorry, I think normally Correct. I. Sorry, I think my internet's slow. Talking. I'm getting really. Oh no, sorry. Is it bouncing around? Okay. Is it gonna... What I was gonna say is that. Yeah. I think there's yeah. a delay. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Um.
4: Okay, I think I think I'm live. Oh. Um, what I was gonna say is that uh, uh, again, while still being very skeptical, uh, we have to. It, it is impossible to prove a negative, or right. all but impossible from a science standpoint. Right. So. Oh um so yeah. it, it is certainly true that like it, just because we haven't found one doesn't mean they can't possibly exist.
3: Right. Um yeah. you, so can, you can remain uh, agnostic yeah. or skeptical but uh, but right you you can't uh, it's difficult to prove a negative, yeah.
4: All
2: right. The next right.
4: question right. is Right and in, you know love. in science land you don't See. do that. Right.
2: I am so sorry. There, I'm so sorry. There. I think there's a little bit of a delay that it's causing us to overlap. So I'm really sorry. I like interrupted you eight times just then. Um, the next question is from Caleb, and um, Caleb says, "Let me see here. Let me scroll back up." Uh, Caleb generously has asked my thoughts on Bigfoot, I guess, because these guys know we are a modern debate that I do love human evolution and primates and things like that. Um, so I, I appreciate the opportunity to ask a question, because uh, I, I certainly do have one. I think that, um, I think this has been a really interesting chat. My My question would come less from, less from the uh, angle of of the of the evidence that exists um in the vein of the Patterson Gimlin film which i do think is a very strange film um and more from the perspective of if if there is a north american primate living living here in on this continent uh how would it have gotten here, you know, uh, transmitting over from either Africa or Asia? And in your opinion, would it be more in the vein of a Gigantopithecus blackii type specimen or some, like a, like a Paranthropine, or something right. in the Australopithecus, uh, grass group? Right.
3: Well, I, I think there are two uh, reasonable null hypotheses to entertain. And, and you touched on both of them. Uh, one being, uh, as was suggested very early on by, by some, Investigators, I think John Green was the first to propose it, Gigantopithecus. We know there was an ape that's the right size in the right place at the right time to be a reasonable ancestor. The problem is we have a very meager fossil record, jaws and teeth. Um, and, uh, but uh, it, it exhibits uh, adaptations in those jaws and teeth that are also suggestive of some of the anatomy that we see in the Patterson-Gimlin film. But we don't have a femur. I mean, if someone would walk out of one of those Vietnamese caves or Chinese caves with a gigantic femur that was obviously from a biped, I mean, wouldn't
2: that be I nice? That,
3: that would be amazing, yeah. wouldn't it? But so far, just jaws and teeth. And the only reason we have those is because porcupines dragged them into the caves and chewed up the soft bits, and the hard bits persisted. But it, had we not limestone caves and porcupines, we'd have absolutely no knowledge of gigantopithecus whatsoever. The so, other possibility. Oh, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to add something quickly to that because because I'm curious about this because for yes. me, you know, my, my main deal is because you know we we find um, uh, even large primate species have been found somewhat recently. The bonobo was mid 1900s, I believe. The billy ape, which is a, a another Pentroglodyte subspecies, was is you know t- early 2000s. So right. so for me, it's it's less that and it's more that we have no fossil record of large uh, hominids in North America, and if you're finding right. them in Idaho, maybe like if you think there's some in Idaho. I think that's a bit strange because if they're in the Pacific Northwest, I would get on board with like, okay, that's a hard area to fossilize, but if they're all over the place, why have we never found any fossils? Do you think?
3: Right. Well, they're, they're not first, they're not all over the place. There is a good, uh, ecological, uh, basis with, for the, um, and I won't say credible, I'll say substantiated reports of encounters or evidence for Sasquatch in North America. And it bears a remarkable resemblance to the distribution of, of black bear across North America. And that was brought up in a published paper, an editorial in a, uh, the Journal of Biogeography, that, where they were actually testing um, software packages for, uh, for ecological modeling. And uh, to demonstrate the, a, a cautionary note about not treating these packages as black boxes, where you don't know what it's doing to your data, they tested some ostensibly bogus data namely bigfoot data garnered from databases online but what came out was a remarkably coherent pattern of distribution that was tied to uh, uh, bioclimatic factors that were very similar to distribution for black bear and and to get the editorial published they because one of the authors was a very uh, was uh, an enthusiast a, a very very uh proponent of, of the existence of bigfoot actually a gis specialist um who grew up in colorado but uh, he told me um on the side he said jeff you you more than anyone should know if we suggested at all that this data actually um uh, suggested the possibility of sasquatch it wouldn't have been published so we had to tongue-in-cheek say that the possible explanation for sasquatch then was given the congruence of these sightings with black bear distribution, they were simply misidentified black bears. Anyway, so a rule of thumb I I propose to people is you can, you can uh, uh, just simply ask: Does the habitat, does the region you're in or you're interested in, does it harbor black bear, has, or has the has it ever historically or present, or has the habitat been encroached upon and degraded and population sprawl and so forth enough that it's extirpated the black bear? So. They're not everywhere, first of all, Um, but, uh, and and the conditions for fossilization in Idaho, at least northern Idaho, or in those areas where there's dense coniferous forest, historically, those are typically in very, uh, create very acidic conditions, acidic soils. And unless you have a circumstance like in China, where the porcupines are dragging the remains, or some concentrators dragging the remains into a more conducive environment, namely a limestone cave, or where there are river sediments, or you know, with enough alkaline uh, environment that it's going to preserve bone, those they're, they're going to vanish. They're going to be gone. They're going to be chewed up. And what isn't chewed up is exposed to the environment and quickly um, is obliterated. The other point is that that they probably have only been in North America for uh, geologically a fairly recent um, period of time. Um, they must have, in either case, whether they were Gigantopithecus or whether they were uh, a paranthropine of some sort. They had to have come from the old world, from from uh, Africa perhaps, Asia uh, perhaps, or, de- or most certainly through Asia. And as was the case with 75% of the mammal species that now inhabit North America, they came from Asia. And they got here from the Bering, across the Bering Land Bridge which contrary to popular conception was not always an arctic tundra. Uh, it, there were periods of time as demonstrated by um, pollen core samples from the continental shelf. That was a corridor of uh, coniferous forest, even mixed deciduous and coniferous forests, that extended from Southern China all the way th- uh, into the Southeastern United States. And at, at times. And so, you know, um, uh, You know what a little red panda is, red panda, little raccoon panda? Well, they're part of that um, um, community, that faunal community of which Gigantopithecus was a member, just as an example. Well, we have fossils of the little red panda in Washington state and in Alabama. So if a little panda could make its way across the Bering Land Bridge, I'm certain that a giant um, bipedal could as well, so that's where they probably came from. Nice. Now the pronghoppers. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Interrupt I'll, I'll you. Cut, no, I'll cut
1: it there. I'll cut it there. So we that's, make a Thank question. you for the answer. Super yeah. interesting. I I just while you were speaking, I, I pulled a picture of a red panda up, and I'm like, that's also They're not so only cute. the longest traveling perhaps, but also the cutest animal. It really well, cute.
3: Let Let me just add. See, because people have this notion when they say migrate. They, they have this image of these little animals packing up their, their bag or their knapsack and striking off for the horizon with a with a destination in mind. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this inexorable expansion of a habitat. And then the animals that live in that habitat just naturally spread to fill that habitat. And eventually they spread from one continent to the next. So it's, it's not a, you know, I always hate to use the word migration. This is even a, a problem with Hominin evolution. Um, Homo erectus in some books is labeled, you know, the migrating um, (laughs) hominin, as if suddenly now their longer limbs and more human-like body proportions equip them for that perilous march across, you know, across (laughs) Asia. Well, if you look at the first appearance of Homo erectus in Southeast Asia and its earliest appearance in Africa, they only had to move about two miles every generation, not every year, every generation for them to eventually get into southeast Asia i mean there's no march there's no there's no exodus there's no you know it goes back to these human evolution narratives that they has gotten so much press, this, you know, the triumphant hominid suddenly has the adaptations to conquer. <laughs> I just got
4: excited because you touched on my field for half a second of yeah. paleo climate. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. um of, of of uh climate cycles and when you would like not naturally not have ice in the like where we now have Arctic tundra and right? we have it, fun things like that anyway.
3: And, and it wasn't, a, even during the ice ages, it wasn't uniform ice yeah. coverage either. There were periods where there could have been pockets of these forest corridors that the, the creatures, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, I, and I think originally that was, they were coastal, the, the coastal um, rainforest, temperate rainforest, I think was their primary habitat. And as they exploited uh, resources like salmon, these major rivers like the Fraser, the Columbia, the Klamath, you know. there are salmon that make it all the way up into central Idaho along those waterways and and I think an animal that exploits that kind of resource seasonally would just you know follow them inland and if they're generalized enough like a black bear I mean black bear are able to inhabit quite a variety of of habitats but uh, Hmm. they still seek out the mountains or the forests super
1: Next. Thank you very much, and I, I have to ask this because Tuss beatbox. I didn't get to ask your question in a prior debate. I owe you one, Tuss, and thanks for all your support. Tuss had question for Dr. Meldrum: If Bigfoot is so close to a human, would it be immoral to capture it if we actually did encounter it?
3: Well, sure. We've we've wrestled with those same ethical questions with the great apes, and there's you know there's a huge movement to uh, limit. Um, uh, uh, the uh, exploitation of grade apes for medical research and whatever. And so, yeah, it's going to be the, a similar scenario. But, you know, when, when people ask, well, wh- what will be the implications if one is discovered? Well, one way to kind of get a good handle on that is just to look again, look back in history. What was the unfolding of our attitudes towards the discovery of, uh, or, or surrounding the discovery of gorillas? And the impact that had on our view of ourselves and our, our uh, biological uh, identity and history. And I think it'll just amplify some of those same kinds of discussions. And, uh, but it's not going to rewrite the textbooks. Like I said, it's, there, there's a slot right now just sitting there vacant, waiting for someone to discover them or to recognize them. Some would argue they've already been discovered. It's just acknowledge them and put them in that slot. I mean there's a place,
1: a context for it now. You wouldn't have to create anything new really. Just add a chapter. You bet. Thank you. And then oh Erica, sorry, I didn't mean to
2: Oh no, listen. Yeah, by all means. I think um I think the next one's from Stoner Lynn who asks um, Dr. Jeff, are you convinced of a hominid specifically, or could Bigfoot be a type of bear or some other uh, previously thought to be extinct mammal? Um, I, I think they're referring, they have in parentheses like the Yeti, and I think they're referring oh. to that uh, environmental DNA study they did a while back where yep. they found a polar bear, I think it was a Russian polar bear.
3: Well, Well, yeah, that's, well, there's a big story when yeah. when when you bring up uh, the yeti then the potential conflation with bear is is very real uh because um the the indigenous population's perception of the yeti is very nebulous uh, well with nature i mean the the boundary for them between the natural world and the spiritual world is very fluid and um so the, they perceive uh, in their own writings, they talk about the Yeti being the spirit of the mountain. And that spirit can manifest itself corporeally in any variety of ways. And this is why, you know, I, I, I being interested in footprints, I did a very, and with the assistance of a, of a student that had a interest in footprints, we did a very thorough survey of all the known footprints attributed to the Yeti. And what we found is, a a large fraction, a significant fraction, the majority, were unintelligible. They were indeterminate. They, you know, they were attributed to Yeti because they couldn't, (laughs) they couldn't identify them as anything else. So it must be a Yeti, right? Um, Then there was a a large number of the remaining that were clearly bear. There were only two that potentially represented a hominoid. And of the bear, you know, I, I would ask myself, are these Sherpas that disingenuous? Because there are some classic cases. Frank Smith found some excellent clear footprints, and the Sherpas were adamant. Oh, Yeti, Yeti, you know, Saeed, Yeti, Yeti. And he took pictures, sent them back to England, and they said, hmm, uh, looks like a bear. And I finally, I got, I tracked down, and Frank never would publish any pictures of his accounts. I tracked down his heir, his son, and he was kind enough to share A a page proof of of a bunch of the photos and they were absolutely 100% bear. So what were these Sherpa thinking? Well, to them, if you find bear tracks up in this, which themselves are inexplicable at these altitudes going over these huge, you know, these high passes, it must not be just a bear. It's the spirit of the Yeti. Or if a pilgrim makes his way up from one monastery to the other and crosses over a pass and they find those footprints, it must be a Yeti, you know. And so that's that makes it very problematic. Over here, no, I don't think it's some kind of species of bear or uh, I mean there's a very clear and distinct um, differentiation in the description and so forth. There's clear differentiation in the in in our indigenous populations. Uh, I should say, North American indigenous populations between their depictions of a bear in totem poles, for example, has all the characteristics, ears on top of the head, a snout, canine teeth, whereas the Bukwas, the wild man of the woods, has a flat face, broad flaring nostrils, large squared off teeth, ears on the side of its head, hair all over it. You know, I mean, it's very distinct. Hmm.
1: Thank you for that. And... Jay Mixon, thanks for your question, said, are there any, quote unquote, pieces of evidence other than the media and footprints, uh, media, I'm, I'm not sure if they mean like media more broadly or the, the video that we showed earlier, they say that point back to this species. For example, are there any droppings or tree markings? And how do, you, how do we know if the droppings are human or Sasquatch or whatever else?
3: Right. Right. Well, when it comes to droppings, uh, scat, um, the, the the usual problem is not separating human from from Bigfoot, but separating Bigfoot or Sasquatch from bear. They're both large omnivores, and as such, their scat will reflect what they have been eating seasonally, or even within the past week. You know, their gut passage time is probably a lot longer than ours is, if. if if uh, other grade eights are representative of, of that kind of uh, adaptation. And so, you know, if they're eating berries, it looks like cobbler. <laughs> if they're eating lots of uh, greens in the springtime, then it looks like manure. It looks like hay. You know, if they get into a, a carcass, then it's black and tarry from all the protein. And, uh, uh, and even the girth, you know, the shape and the girth, they're, they're not the consistency also varies with diet, varies with, with size and there's enough overlap in body size that it's hard to differentiate. So we haven't, again, uh, we, we've, I've dealt with so many samples of scat. <laughs> I've had to tell people don't send me your samples. I had uh, one, one uh, enthusiastic investigator sent their sample, apparently it was frozen when he put it in the mail, but in August it arrived quite thawed and I got this, Telephone call from the secretary. Uh, Dr. Mildrum There's a package for you and it's dripping. So unless you find a sample right between two footprints and it's still steaming because um, the, the uh, cells, the mucosal cells that are sloughed off with that uh, evacuation only will survive the bacterial action of the gut flora for about eight hours. And so unless you, it's very fresh, it's still steaming and you can get it and stabilize it in some uh, 95% ethanol. Please don't don't bother sending it to me. I'm you know, taking a nice picture. If you want to air dry a sample.
1: Something that just crossed my mind, and I wonder if this would be especially supportive in terms of it being actual scat from a Bigfoot, is if you find that it does have the size proportions that are like, this is uh, not a human, way too big, I'm assuming, and if you at the same time have what looks close to like human DNA and it's like, Oh wow. Like it, you could say it excludes itself from being human because it's too big and it excludes itself from being bear because it's human DNA. That's right. a interesting James thing. Is
2: in the dis- you're in the discourse now. Now you're, you're, you're <laughs> in <too> deep.
1: <laughs> this is a super interesting though. Um, but we, I, we've we got a lot of questions. So I want to, sorry for uh, my, I usually don't put any of my two cents in or thinking. <laughs> I, right like it. I
2: liked hearing it. I liked the thoughts.
4: You got James excited. Yeah.
1: This is, I've been telling people for like a month. I've been like, you guys, this is like some of the most interesting kind of content that I think we've had in a while. And so it's, I would, I mean, I, anyway, okay, sorry. So <laughs> next question, this one comes in from, oh, mm. ferret, or was it a, Jay Mixon, thanks for your question. No, we got that one. Okay, Erica, so sorry. Go mm-hmm. ahead.
2: Oh, no, no, no. No, we're good. Um, there was one from Snake Was Right. Snake, Snake Was Right said, uh, get, donated for the Erica Debates Bigfoot Fund. Bigfoot would kick my butt in a debate, 100%. Um, I've, I've heard that the Bigfoot, she's quite the debate bro. Um, from Beethoven, no relation for both of you. Um, they, Beethoven asks, Let's say you found a skeleton. How would you personally tell that it's Bigfoot? How, like, what would your criteria be?
3: Well, if it's a skull, like that one over your shoulder there, there, there's a myriad of of characteristics that would uh, clearly um, distinguish it. Um, We would expect that, you know, there's an interesting um, graphic that I created where I took a blow up of that uh, Patterson-Gimlin film so had just a, the bust here and, um, uh, blew up to scale, um, a, uh, robust australopithecine, the composite, uh, or, or, uh, Paranthropus boisei. And, and what's fascinating is that point for point, every landmark from the top of the head to the receding chin lines up. And so, um. We actually were going to do a project. I discussed the possibility of doing a project with Bill Munns, who's done a lot of analysis with the film and is a, is great at um, at anthropological reconstructions from fleshing out the the, the skulls of, of um, primates, you know, much as a forensic uh, analyst would do. And I said, let's do the reverse. Let's take let's take what we see on Patty and peel away the anatomy, and what's the underlying skull? Well, it doesn't. If you're an anatomist it doesn't take much to, to uh, visualize. And it would end up looking remarkably like um, the skull that we have in Paranthropus. So it would be, it would be quite recognizable. It would be different than any other animal out there. One time I got a phone call and there was a gentleman who was working on putting a power line through the Rogue River country of Southern Oregon, really remote, wild country. And uh, he said, I've got it. He said, I've got the definitive evidence. He said, I even had a human osteology course when I was in college, and um, and he said, "So I I know what I'm talking about." And so I thought, "Oh, you know, this is it. This is really going to be it." And I said, "Well, send me a photo of it as soon as you can." So he did. When he got the photo, it was a moose skull with the snout just snapped off, so it made it look flat. But I mean, the teeth, the teeth. You know, if, if if all I had was the jaw, or even just an isolated molar, I could tell if it was sasquatch or not.
2: The Y pattern, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would be different than any other mammal that's out there. And that uh, in this case, it had the selenodont, the big rasp like teeth of, a, of an herbivore. And uh, uh, he was a little embarrassed to have <laughs> <up> to <him. laughs> But no, we'd be able to tell. Quite, even if it was a limb bone, we'd be able to differentiate it. Uh, a limb bone or a finger bone or a toe bone or something would be enough. Oh. A skull would be fantastic.
1: That's really interesting. And Erica, I might need your help on this next question in the list from converse contender. I don't know if I, I don't think I could pronounce these uh, yeah. species that they're native. Yeah, Yeah. Uh,
2: uh, yeah. They're, they're just their conditions. So um, it, real fast though, Maddie, did you want that question was for both of you? So if you want, you can answer that too.
4: Um, I, I mean, I can try. So, so not my field. So I wouldn't identify it um, the, if I found a skeleton, I feel like that would be, I would call the police. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, if you found a skeleton, I mean, certainly you guys are talking about lots of your field, really cool stuff that I did not understand a word of. But if you had an actual skeleton and not fossils, you would have DNA, right? right. And so that yeah. would also be, because um, again, for me, like the thing that would no joke convince me would be DNA. Oh, right? Yeah. Um So that, yeah, that's, that's my answer.
2: Right, sweet. Converse Contender asks, um, Dr. Jeff, any comments on the raphite slash Um, So I, I, I imagine that they're referring to polydactyly in general. Uh, raphite? Mm-hmm.
3: Um, Can someone is, is, that, is that like, like, like one of the race of giants?
2: That <laughs> I don't know. I, I recognize okay. polydactyly. I, at first I thought it said ratites, and I was like... Rattites. I don't know that we're talking about rats. I,
3: I, I, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, the 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 traditions about giants. One of the characteristics that's commonly mentioned is is polydactyly, with a six digit on the hand and feet, and often double rows of teeth. Really strange uh, characteristic. Again, uh, there's a there's a lot of enthusiasm for giants. I mean, there was a whole uh, TV documentary series in search of giants, and they, I mean, it was it was worse. Than than uh, uh, finding Bigfoot or not finding Bigfoot um, because they never came up with any evidence. There's all these newspaper accounts. There's all these urban legends about uh, uh, museum vaults harboring the, the lost race of giants, the great, the mounds and so forth. And not one piece of evidence, the Lovelock cave with its giant skull. Uh, this person wanted me to drive out there. Well, I just called the, the curator and I said, just tell me because you know what they, they use the old fisherman's trick you know if i want to show you the fish that i caught i don't hold it up like this to take a picture what do i do i hold it up like this
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know and so they had taken the picture of the skull with the scale way down on the ground and got up close so the skull looked about 30 percent bigger than it actually was it was an absolutely typical modern human skull no mm. characteristics. So i kind of pressed her on it and <laughs> who finally admitted well you know yeah it's only this long she said but you got to realize you know we're in this little museum we're on a you know the the highway the freeway took all the traffic away from the highway and i said okay that's fine just be straight with me said, there's no bones there's no there's
1: you know huh. God, well, there's the beef.
2: yeah i respect yeah i respect that yeah.
3: <laughs> but like i said those of us in glass houses you know i don't throw stones i'd love i mean to find a giant skull uh, whether it was a Bigfoot or whether it was a, a lost race of giants, <laughs> but uh, um, I'm not holding my breath on that one. Super interesting. It'd be
1: sweet
2: though.
1: I, yep. um, the, uh, I'm going to jump in with the next one. Dave, and especially to put Erica on the spot, da- Dave Dahliafor, thanks for your support, says we love Erica. Thanks so much for that kind uh, super chat. Thank you,
2: Dave. Very kind. Okay, from Decepticons forever. This is—they're kind of coming after you a little, uh, Dr. Jeff. They say the population of cryptids dropped proportionally to the proliferation of four K um, sixty camera phones. Must be the pesky five G radiation.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, that—that's always a question that's raised. Is with all the phones that are out there, why aren't there more pictures? And it's actually interesting. I mean, there's a lot of uh, uh, very sketchy very uh brief encounters you know photo bomb events where they're taking a picture of the wedding or something and the bigfoot walks across the yes. skyline you know um one thing that's 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 evident is most people are not very good with cameras i mean i I must say I'm a recent convert to iPhones, I've recently joined those ranks, and I still am, am kind of clumsy with it. I'm amazed when I see on TV, you know, these iPhones come out and they're immediately turned on and they're recording whatever's transpiring. But uh, there was actually a, a, a Facebook page called Facebook Find Bigfoot, and this, uh, this host would invite uh, snippets to be submitted, and then he would go through and, and critique them. And over the time, over time, as he accumulated these, the uh, there were some patterns. I mean, there was a lot of just, you know, uh, useless stuff that he he uh, blazed through with no no issues. But he would rank them, and and um, based on these criteria that started to emerge, when you looked at the top twenty, it was really quite interesting. Any one by itself really wasn't that impressive. And, and and the very fleeting, very uh, incomplete views—nothing like the Patterson-Gimlin film that has set the bar so high. But when you took them all in a series, the consistency of some of these characteristics—the set of the head on the shoulders, the you know the massive neck muscles, the the way the hand swung back, the way the foot was lifted high in that high step, uh, the appearance of the sole of the foot—you know things like that would would show up over and over again. It was really kind of impressive, but. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's
4: actually, I was just going to say, there's actually a reason I didn't, that's not a point that I brought up.
3: Uh, right?
4: um, and if there's one thing being in meteorology has taught uh, me it's that earth real big. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I study the Arctic, right? Um, so I look at a region that is 6,000 kilometers in diameter, mm-hmm. right? I get two satellite passes a day. <laughs> and that is it yeah right? right so um even with satellites even if we're not talking about the arctic region which actually with polar orbiting satellites you get closer finer detail but um and then you would say in like idaho um
1: yeah.
4: uh wyoming the entire state of wyoming has five hundred thousand people and there's more cows there right yeah. so like like that point actually isn't one that bothers me a whole lot yeah. and it's because earth real big yeah and so if, if you're in a populated area that's right. different but if you've got a population density of more cows than people it's a very different
3: world sure right and and the areas that seem to be Sorry, preferred, I'm supposed to be preferred habitats the no 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 no, I, no.
1: I, yeah. it's I, I the
3: convergence like, you know the truth yeah. is the truth so yeah. <laughs> they will converge but uh but that's the point is uh you know even with native americans um you know the native americans didn't go into some of these backcountry areas really I mean, they the mountains had resources that they would visit to collect but they didn't live there in part because there were other things that lived there <laughs> in according to their tradition so they hugged down the, the the valleys and the river uh banks and and the coastlines and uh You know, there just isn't, there aren't many people in the air. And in fact, less so now than 50 years ago, there are fewer people that, that go, you know, the backpacking craze has really tapered off. Um, Hunters tend to be less in shape. And so depend on, on uh, four by fours, you know, or ATVs. And uh, the, uh, there are fewer uh, prospectors and fur trappers out there in the woods. It's uh, it's, we, we have definitely su- at least suburbanized um, from, from the rural parts of uh, uh, of the uh, terrain. And so it's it's left a lot of uh, areas unmolested.
4: Would you say that the native populations didn't go chasing waterfalls and stuck to the rivers and lakes that they're used to?
2: All right, all right. <laughs> You're going to get booted out of here with jokes like that. <laughs> Both
4: of you, <laughs> sorry, you, got a,
3: you got a waterfall checklist. I know it's a beat like in Yellowstone. No. I, I've got a. Oh,
4: got a sorry, book that on is a of that the, is a song lyric that it I. It was oh, like oh,
2: that's, okay. <laughs> don't, a, don't, that's don't, a really don't, bad joke. Waterfalls,
4: yeah. Uh, to
2: the rivers uh, and lakes. Gotcha, All right, yeah. I, I listen. I liked it, and by liked it, I I hated it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We've got another question from Jay Mixon. Appreciate it, Jay. And then we've got to, we're have got we going to wrap up pretty quick here. We've only got two more here that I see in the super chat list that came in last minute. Jay Mixon uh, well, says, are there any comparative species we thought were long extinct extinct, to the extent of Gigantopithecus, for example, that we later found in existence?
3: Well, well the classic example is the coelacanth which was thought to be extinct uh, as a group of fish for several millions of years, not just 100,000 years like with Gigantopithecus. So, yes, there are are examples of... uh, Pardon?
4: Are there non-fish examples?
3: Well, I'm trying to think um, that were thought to be extinct, but then were rediscovered. Or maybe... Um,
2: there have been some discoveries of things like I know the okapi was one that was like mythical and then they they were like oh okay the okapi is like a real thing that that is here and thriving right right Um, I don't know I I feel like by the time we were like oh this is what paleontology is and here are things that have gone extinct we were mostly everywhere by that point as a species so I don't know I don't know of an example myself
3: yeah I can't think of one right off that uh, where a terrestrial species was thought to be extinct and then and then showed up but
4: is there an example where like maybe that species is extinct now but like you thought it went extinct a million years ago but really it only went extinct a hundred thousand years ago
3: oh right well, most, kind
4: of a, a similar story
3: oh that we just weren't things, allowed to see it yeah things like that that's keep happening interest. i mean okay. we we know that uh from from experience that what are thought to be first uh, appearances in the fossil record and last mm-hmm. occurrences in the fossil record are probably not absolute brackets that, right. you know, you're sampling and, and the chances of catching that very last event or very first event is, is minuscule. So, yeah, I mean, the first appearance of Homo sapiens just got pushed back to 300,000 years, you know, almost a hundred thousand years older than it was thought previously. That's so... Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, by right, like
4: if it's a yeah, cuz if it's if it's a margin of error of like a like 10,000 years if you're talking yeah. geologic time scales that's nothing. Mm-hmm. But right. like I don't but 100,000 years I'm impressed by. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think
2: something similar recently happened with Homo erectus too. Uh, I think it was a oh, I can't remember. It's a it was at a South African cave site? Starts with the D caveside does. I can't remember it for the life of me, but they recently found a skull cap down there that, that is very Homo erectus in nature. Yeah. And they were like, okay, if this is the case, we're, we're pushing back the, the emergence of the first, you know, organized, and you know, species are arbitrary. So, right. So it's like the first things that look kind of Homo erectus-ish. Right. Um, it's a lot earlier than we thought, which is cool. Yeah.
3: yeah. Oh yeah. We're just, you know, there, uh, there was one, uh, Bob Martin is a primatologist uh, now, semi-retired I think but but he wrote an excellent book and made a comment in there where he to try to convey a sense of how limited our our understanding of the diversity actually is of primates he made a comparative study of paleo communities their diversity versus um, extent diversity of similar communities of of groups of of taxonomically related species and so forth. And based on that, he estimated for the lower, uh, you know, primate monkeys and and prosimians that we probably only have an 8% sample of the diversity that actually existed in the past based on the diversity that's observable today. I know the
2: Miocene apes are even worse for that because their conditions for fossilization in like Europe were just horrible. So it's like we got this handful of Miocene apes and we're like look at all these Miocene apes and then someone's like that's not even a fraction of them.
3: Right exactly and that's just it you know we talk about relic hominoids. Uh, The the living great apes today are relic hominoids. They're on the verge of extinction. They're holding on by their fingernails Uh, and and uh, you know during the Miocene there were hundreds of species of great ape across Eurasia and Africa and uh, so yeah it's um,
2: that makes me so depressed that's so depressing.
3: Oh I know I know to to see that we're on the tail end of that and if that uh, you know goes uh, extinguishes that flame that uh, gene line
1: Mm. Mm. super interesting and otangelo thank you for your uh (laughs) kind super chat uh they they said thank you for the guests and we are want to let you know folks we the only reason i was giggling at that is because we also had we've had some what are either imposters or bots in the chat tonight and i have to be honest if they're bots i'm impressed at how sophisticated they are i was giggling just because i was like i didn't know people could put a did you guys know that people put bots of like fake accounts in the live chat and they're like talking i didn't so anyway (laughs) want to say we are we are thrilled about this debate folks we really appreciate you hanging out with us sorry that we we there's some questions left that we didn't get to we do want to respect the time of our guests we really do appreciate them and we've gone over time we want to do recommend though you can find their links in the description i have put those links there you guys and so highly encourage you to check out those links and I want to say a huge thank you to Dr. Jeff, as well as Maddie and Erica. Thanks so much for being here today with us at Modern Day Debate. With that, we will kick it over to a post-credit scene in just a few moments. So I will be back, folks, just with some updates on upcoming debates. And with that, thanks for being with us. And keep sifting out the reasonable from okay. the unreasonable, everybody.